and welcome to Tonebender's Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. Today we're talking about Season 2 of Marvel's animated series, What If, that can be found on Disney+. The idea of What If is that they're stories where something slightly different happens to our heroes, and that sometimes small change can make radical shifts in the stories we've come to know from the comics and films. We're going to focus on one particular episode in Season 2 called What If Cahorty Reshaped the World? And when I first heard that, I thought, who's Cahorty? That's the interesting thing about this episode, is our guest had to completely come up with the sounds for her superpowers and her backstory. We're going to get into that with our guests today. First up, we have a returning champion, Mac Smith. Mac, welcome back to Tonebenders. It's great to talk to you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. And Mac, you were the supervising sound editor on season two of What If? Yes, and sound designer. Excellent. Also joining us today, we have Jeff King. Jeff, I have not met before. It's great to meet you, Jeff. Welcome. Very nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having me. And Jeff, you were a re-recording mixer? That's correct. I guess let's start off with an outline of the episode. It's about if one of the Infinity Stones ended up on Earth uh, maybe 300 years ago, 400 years ago, and lands in North America, and an indigenous tribe, the Mohawks, I believe, one of their uh, members becomes enhanced by the powers of the Infinity Stone. The sounds that you use for her powers have to somewhat be informed by the previous sounds of Infinity Stones. But also, it's a brand new sandbox for you to play in. Mac, do you want to talk about your first thoughts when you were given this challenge? Yeah, definitely uh, an intimidating uh, task to come up with the sounds of a brand new Marvel hero that uh, was not in the comics, not in any of the previous uh, shows or movies, who might live on for decades to come. So create a signature sound that can live on. Um, so definitely daunting and a challenge to, to start with. You know, of course, the visuals informed it very much. This be- beautiful sort of blue powers uh, that are based on, you know, you see the Tesseract go down into Earth and fall into this lake and illuminate the lake as a as a blue um, sort of glowing body of water. And so I did fish back into the, the Marvel sound effects library and did find some of those tones that were originally created for the Tesseract and the Infinity Stone that was encased in it. There were limited options there, but but I did find you know something to sort of base um, sort of the the steady tonal thing on. But the thing that uh, turned out really informed me about um, creating Cordy's sounds were that she appears in the finale episode and she fights Supreme Strange. She fights against Captain Carter using the Ultron suit from the finale of season one. And so there were all of these sort of already established sounds from those characters and she had to live within a sonic real estate of them so i kind of reversed engineered her sounds starting with playing in the finale episode to figure out sort of what those limits were going to be and then kind of walked myself back knowing that also cohorty and her skyworld powers had to evolve they had to sort of be this sort of beautiful minimal kind of thing that grew and grew and grew as she harnessed her powers and understood her capabilities. And then they would have to grow another step in the finale because she's, uh, you know, been using them for a while. That sort of was the the roadmap for me to start with. And of course, the spotting session with Brian Andrews, the director, he's fantastic. And he's not shy about vocalizing what he wants to hear in the episodes. He He talks, you know, 
in all these terms. And then he also isn't afraid to vocalize. Like, I want this thing to go, you know, he's, he's vocalizing all these sounds, which are fantastic, which we don't get from um, all of our clients. And he's just really into sound and trust us. Cause I, I worked with him on season one. So that, that was kind of like where I started. And Jeff, when you got the sounds from uh, Mac, uh, how did you tackle them on the faders? Mac, having all that knowledge and background, it's great because he, you know, has to kind of figure out the world. And then, you know, I get all these tracks and, you know, with the time we have, um, it's very much, you know, we kind of start with um, at the top with, you know, dialogue kind of getting it placed and, you know, some panning, a lot of reverb and treating, you know, outside. And this episode is great with the kind of the caves. There's a lot of fun, but really it's just kind of, you know, laying out what we have and going kind of pre-dub by pre-dub. And so I'll start with dialogue. Um, I'll get a good level on it. Ambiences, usually we had two, sometimes four ambience pre-dubs. And then Foley, sometimes we get such big effects, it's nice to kind of let the Foley play as it should feel natural with the dialogue. Um, And then, you know, moving into effects, we usually had, I think, sometimes... On other episodes, we had more, but I think on this episode, we had eight effects pre-dubs. And just one by one, just kind of start to finish, get you know get that layer, and then build up the next layer, the next layer, the next layer, and then bring it all together kind of in the same pool. And so I usually had kind of two days to pre-mix and kind of get everything set out on my own. And then we had another two days with our picture editor, Anton. When he comes in is really when the music, you know, because most of the pre-mix time was spent getting the dialogue and effects kind of everything playing together and then it feels good to kind of go through it with the editor with the music and and writing the emotions and you know what what needs to shine here and what can take a back seat usually a lot of material to get through but you know it's it's pretty well prepared and and you know at mac everything filters through mac and so it's it's laid out very well that we can get through it in the time we have awesome so at the end of the episode a card comes up during the credits saying that the uh Mohawk Nation collaborated on this episode. Did that work its way down to the sound team at all? Was there any uh, influence or do's and don'ts that you were given? Uh, not really. They had worked a lot with them on, I think, the writing of the episode and then also the voice recording and making sure all the language was correct and everything was culturally appropriate. So a lot of that work and collaboration had been done before we came on. So that didn't influence too much of, of what we were doing yet. Yeah, we wanted to be as authentic as we could to the the time and space, you know, making sure that, you know, this is many hundreds of years ago, make sure we weren't using ambiences with distant traffic or planes or anything like that in there, make the, you know, the forest sound very beautiful and and then, you know, the fire raging and all that stuff once the the Spanish conquistadors sort of took over the village and, and burned it. So, yeah, we didn't work closely with them per se, but the... When we did come on, Vanessa Lopato, our dialogue supervisor, she got to be part of the the loop group session with a bunch of actors who did speak the Mohawk language, made sure that uh, she was getting enough of those elements to fill out the village when Cahorty first wakes up and the sky world. And she's, you know, confused about where she is, hearing all those people around and then getting some, you know, extra efforts and things for the big chase of the buffalo bison like creatures and and some of those other elements for for the people and and then in the celebration later going back to her her sounds and the sky world sounds you know i end up laying out my i, I create this giant sound design session 
that's kind of laid out like a ransom note that I think if anybody else looked at, they would be totally like, I don't know what this is. I don't know. You know, this it makes no sense. But it's it's kind of the way that I, I work on these things where I just start pulling elements, just tons of elements from library stuff. You know, we, our, our Skywalker library is kind of an embarrassment of riches. There's so much stuff in there. Um, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. So I just... I kind of like turn off my my judgment and I just pull sounds, pull sounds, pull sounds, pull sounds. And then later on kind of go through and just cherry pick like, oh, this is an interesting idea. This is an interesting idea. I ended up pulling a lot of, of sounds of like beautiful sort of sliding copper sort of phasey things and, and bowing glass and metal sounds and, and different whispery whooshes and things and trying to figure out like how do I create these beautiful blue sort of textures that you see when they're jumping and when they're doing all these things and trying to give them character. And, and they would just evolve and evolve and evolve. Once I kind of find things and start manipulating them with a few plugins and kind of figure out like, oh, this is kind of an interesting combination, then I'll take the, those combinations and I'll make a bunch of versions of those combinations and then put them into Radium in Soundminer and start firing off and just, again, playing. It's just like so much, like I feel like I'm in the sandbox with all the best toys and I'm just like playing and playing and playing and playing and creating stuff and some of it's sticking to the wall and some of it's not. Um, it's kind of funny when I, I, I went back and looked in that session yesterday in preparation for this interview <laughs> to figure out like, what was I thinking and how did I make this work and, and <laughs> where did I start? And, and the other thing is having a giant, huge sound design session for the whole series while these are kind of Twilight Zone episodes and they're kind of one-offs, there do end up being ideas that you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea for this completely different thing that's not Cohorty, like the the spinner vehicles, the Blade Runner-like spinner vehicles in episode one with Nebula. That was something that did have a slight connection to what I was making for Cohorty, but went in a completely different direction. So it's kind of fun not being limited to like, you know, this is sound design only for this one thing or this one episode. I just kind of like throw paint at the wall all over the place and kind of figure out what sticks. So in that sound design session, do you have picture imported at all or is it all just audio? Initially, I don't. Initially, I'm just pulling stuff and and playing with it. But it did end up being complicated with picture because I, I did have to pull those elements of like Strange Supreme from episode from season one and from the Ultron Infinity Suit from season one. And so like at the very end, I was pulling those elements with picture. And then I was like, oh crap, okay, I might as well put all eight or nine or 10 episodes of picture in this session too. So once I'm playing in the front two thirds without picture, once I find sort of combinations I like, let me just throw it against picture and see, see what it's looking like. Cool. Jeff, you were describing the size of your session and how you tackle everything individually. You said you had two days of premix on your own, and then the picture editor comes in. Beginning of that third day, do you just play it all the way through, or are you stopping and starting with changes? How do you tackle uh, the first time that the picture editor's hearing everything? It would vary. Just, you know, some of these episodes are, they're all pretty monstrous, but I mean, they, they varied a bit, but some of our you know, kind of premix time was would bleed into those days. You know, it was <clears throat> generally never would we come in on day one with the picture editor and, and play back. It was more of a, you know, we're wrapping up effects or or foley or maybe we have some ads and and we're integrating the music 
and they're kind of with me on my first pass through music. So, um, you know, it's, I don't really, it doesn't seem worth the time going through the music without them because that's what starts to kind of glue everything together. And so I kind of am with them working, you know, through the whole track and, you know, they'll make comments, but they're very, you know, they trusted us to kind of to go where we felt we needed to go. And they'd say, Oh, well, you know what? We need to, we need to focus on this a bit more here. Um, but it was just kind of like a working pass with them. And, and the goal was generally by the, the second day with them, we do a playback that morning and then talk about it, do notes and spend the rest of the day kind of addressing the notes and getting it ready. Because the, the way the schedule worked was we were, we were kind of doing two episodes at a time before we would pre- present it to our director, um, Brian, and we would have a day with him to, to show him two episodes and we'd, you know, play back, do notes. And then we'd have a day with our executives to play those same two episodes. So we kind of had time with the picture editors to work through the episode. And then we would, you know, work through two episodes at a time with the director and then the executives on a separate day and then just repeat that. Uh, Jeff, one thing we should talk about is the scene at the beach. Oh Yeah. Because that that definitely evolved uh, over time, when Cohorty comes out of the the woods, when all the pulling all the the people from her village, loading them onto the boats, and they're going to go off to the ships. They hear this you know sound in in the woods, and it's Cohorty's uh, fast sky world running her powers, and they all stop, and then she comes out and she's starting to kick kick the conquistadors' butts. But then the, it evolves with the, the music coming in and, and the, the vocals and the chorus. And that was definitely something that um, took a lot of experimenting. The music editors were like, this should be all music. You know, we should get rid of everything else. And it was like, yeah, you know, I hear you because the, the music should definitely lead. But, you know, at the same time, Brian definitely, you know, made notes in the spotting that he wanted to hear. Cohorty putting up the big shield and the cannonballs hitting the shield and all those things. We kind of pre-dubbed it as we would normally, as if there was no music, and then kind of went back and, and pushed it, you know, all of reality towards the back and the music, you know, really took over. But we kind of had to, there were so many levels and so many layers and it was so, you know, such big action. We kind of had to pre-mix it as if that was the star and then, you know, take the time to push it back and let it, you know, what do we want to poke through and, and, and come out? Yeah, it was definitely a dance. It did, For sure. There's a couple moments in this episode, things kind of happen off screen that the sound has to tell the story. Near the beginning of the episode, the kids run into the forest and then they hear off screen gunshots far away. But they also have to be recognizable to us. They couldn't be too far away. It, it was an interesting dance that you did. And then there was also two other parts in this story where people are lurking in the forest. One we just referenced and another one when the conquistadors go into Sky World. Do you want to talk about that kind of delicate dance of uh, building the off-screen world so that the plot makes sense for us? Yeah, I have to give credit to uh, Steve Bissinger, who is our main effects editor on this episode. He did a tremendous amount of uh, work building out all that stuff, uh, the environments and, and the guns and, you know, making sure that they were period appropriate. It was a dance, too, because I think the the character says, you know, oh, is that thunder? When you hear the guns. So it's like you have to have that sort of those elements that could be, wait, is that thunder? But it did sound like guns. But then it really comes down to, to the mix and hey, make sure that's that's done correctly. How did you tackle that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I think like like you're saying, you know, 
there's a lot of, I mean, through the whole episode, there's a lot of kind of perspective, you know, playing a lot of distant, a lot of close up. And so for that too, you know, you're trying to, is it close? Is it near? What is that exactly? So I think there's always kind of a sense of, of danger and, and using reverb and delay and stuff was kind of helping us give separation of what was close by. Um, and a, another good one too is when they, when they're running through the forest and fall into the forbidden lake, you can kind of hear them in the distance kind of coming up. And so we always wanted to, feel that you know the proximity of whether they're near or close and they're they're always kind of on their tail and this episode did you mix it in atmos we did yeah all all the episodes were in atmos we generally on the streaming shows don't do any objects it makes it a little easier for mastering but i throw a lot of stuff up there usually affects a lot of transient events um i know some of the loop groupers at the end when they're kind of they're bouncing around and having a good time and laughing and screaming some of those fly through the ceiling but the big thing that I, you know, I thought shined in Atmos for this episode was the music. I mean, this score was actually one of my favorite um, from all of them. And there's these separate songs as well. But there's a, um, a solo vocal that reoccurs with Cohorty. A lot of that actually gets bled up into the ceiling. So there is this kind of, it's fun to put things that accent up in the ceiling that, you know, make the, the mix seem bigger at moments and just not all the time. And so a lot of those solo vocal and some of the choir would, would bleed up into the ceiling, which, you know, I, I think made it feel a little, you know, elevated. Yeah. Laura Cartman and Nora Kroll Rosenbaum were the composers. They worked on season one also, but they're incredible. And luckily I did have the demos of the score to sound design against, which was nice. Cause I, creating that sky world effects so that they had to be tonal, but they had to work with the score as well. So that's, that's a big challenge because a lot of sound designers have been bit by creating tonal things and suddenly they all get axed during, during the mix. That's me. I've been caught with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it was great to be able to, to create all the sounds and then put them up against the score. And I'm like, I think this is going to work. And, and I definitely like those steady tonal things like the forbidden lake. I definitely pitched those to work in the same frequencies with the main key of the score to try to help them live through the mix. And, and I think they did, which, which was good. Another good one, you know, in that discussion is the, the hunt, you know, the stampede of our creatures is, there's a lot of obviously effects, but then the music is also, you know, fighting for the same space, a lot of drums and percussion. And so that was a fun dance of, you know, again, playing perspectives when we're real close at their feet, you know, it's kind of booming. But then as you cut farther away and they start talking, you got to kind of put it in the back and, you know, as they're jumping around. So that, that was a, another challenging scene too, kind of giving space for everyone, um, all the departments, but it's just a fun, you know, sequence. And Steve had prepared that very well from what I remember that, that he had sort of, uh, mm -hmm. layers of stampeding that were a little more slightly distant and then the very up close hooves. So Jeff could then go back and forth yep. from moment to moment and figure out, okay, I only, only want to hear the close hooves. Okay. I'm going to get rid of and just hear the the distant sort of stampede, constant rumble kind of thing, mm -hmm. which uh, which helped. It's you know it helps to prepare those things well, so they're you know right under your fingers. And when you're playing it for the director, and they're like, ah, I don't know if this is quite working. Jeff can go like, oh, one second, and just quickly, boop, 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 try this. Right. It makes a big difference to to have it prepared like that. Absolutely. So the middle third of this episode that we've been talking about takes place in a. I think technically it's a pocket dimension, but for our purposes, we will call it uh, another world called Sky World within the context of the show. It's very 
Earth-like, but it's everything's been infused with Infinity Stone power. So how did you go about building ambiences for uh, this first time we've ever seen this type of place? That was mostly Steve just experimenting and, and pulling different things. We didn't want to make it sound too alien and otherworldly. We just kind of wanted to make it sound like a, a prettier version of where they came from. Because, you know, if you go too far, then it's going to draw, you know, too much attention. And the focus really needed to be, you know, Cohorty and know that those were still her people that she was with. And then and then all about the, the blue sky world powers. Yeah. And then and letting and letting the music shine. And the portal, too, is kind of always this this thing that's floating around that you're constantly reminded of. So it, it would kind of weave up and down. You know, she'd be reminded of the portal in the sky. So that almost came became an ambience similar. You know, you're you're racing so fast to do all these the sound design, and you're like hoping it sticks to the wall, and you're like, if it doesn't, and I need to need to redo it all, we're sunk. Like, there's no time because <laughs> there's so many other episodes that we have to tackle. Um, so when when I did finally play the Sky World sounds for Brian Andrews and and Anton um, and the the Marvel Animation folks. They, they were big smiles and I was, you know, I was holding my breath a little bit and like, uh, and like, okay, whew, it, it worked, you know, and, and it, he definitely, Brian had notes of, especially when all of the, the people come out of the, the trees to attack the conquistadors on the beach. He had, uh, he wanted more variations there, um, which was definitely a good note than what we initially had. But, um, and when one of the picture assistants also was like, uh, when he heard it, he's like, oh, wow, it. It sounds almost like birds, like you've incorporated this nature into it, which I, I hadn't per se, but it was in that same frequency of birds, sort of that mid to high mid range. Um, so that was that was fun to uh, to get those responses. Mac, you've worked on season one of this, but Jeff, you didn't work on season one of What If, right? That's correct. I looked at your IMDb and you have a fair amount of uh, mix assistant credits going on, but you don't have a ton of uh, lead mixer. When did you make that jump? I spent the past 10 years assisting um, and over the years, you know, would get a lot of opportunities to, you know, help out on pre-dubs. Working with everyone in the building, you just kind of get opportunities that come across. This is all at Skywalker, right? This is all at Skywalker, yeah. So um, a few years ago, I was kind of getting more and more of that and about... A year and a half ago, I kind of made the decision that I was just going to kind of stop teching and go full-time mixing. I'm really kind of new to just full-time mixing. Um, but Mac and I actually worked previously on a, another show, um, Star Wars Visions, last year. And that was kind of our first outing together. Um, you know, we worked many times over the years with me as an assistant. Um, but it was kind of the first time being both in creative um, roles. And so that was... That was kind of what started it, and then, you know, here we are on this one. It's another good time. Yeah, we make a good team. It's uh, I, I like to sit in there, not not during the whole mix, usually not during the pre-dubs, because I'm making sure the next episodes are, are ready to go. But once we get into the, the mode with the picture editor and the director and the execs, I'm sitting right next to Jeff on a fix station, and I'm just, like, cutting fix after fix after fix and feeding them to him pretty quickly. Also, to make sure that the rest of the team can keep working on the the next episodes. Because if I have to suddenly pull them all off to do these fixes, then I'm worried that the next one's not going to get to the mix in time. Um, so it's it's fun. And then, you know, it's, it's fun being in the room with COVID and all the remote stuff. It seems like there's less and less of 
people actually in the room together collaborating because there's so much with just the body language and and just being able to give each other a look and knowing like oh yeah I know exactly what to do or you know yeah you're right or no let's try this you know which is hard hard to communicate sometimes remotely yeah it makes a huge difference to be able to just turn to my side and say hey do we have a sound for this or hey can we you know what what can we do more here and he's always got a sound ready oh I got a, you know xyz um so it's it's for sure, much um, you know more enjoyable and, and just more efficient having someone next to you to kind of hey, what do you think of this and bouncing ideas off. Or I say you're crazy. We don't need that. What do you yeah. think? <laughs> <laughs> the idea that all of the magic of Cohorty is maybe magic isn't the right word. The powers of Cohorty are blue. Does that affect your sound design? Do you have a certain way blue sounds in your head when you go into that, or does the color affect you at all? Not necessarily, but that being said, initially watching the episode and seeing her doing the very fast runs back and forth made me think of Tron and the light cycles. And so that that was definitely something in my head, but I didn't want to like go listen to the light cycles again. You know, I'm yes, I've seen Tron. I worked on Tron Legacy. I know what that stuff sounds like, but I, I didn't want to like go, okay, what do they sound like and how can I make it sound like that? I'm like, what's my memory of how the light cycles sound? And let's kind of come up with something that's a little more organic and less sci-fi. So that was an initial idea. I'd say after that, the blue didn't influence me, except when I did see there are moments where you kind of see the almost water-like parts like come off of the blue powers, especially when, when they're jumping in the tree uh, with Atarox that first scene, I did want to find some uh, synth-like water sounds that were kind of evoked the, the the sound of water but weren't quite water. And so I kind of explored some some of that as an element that's more of sort of a fluttery element. So I guess that all being said, yes, blue did influence my decisions. <laughs> How do you make synth water sounds? I'm not a big synth guy, but I know I've I've heard... There were like pieces of music that I remember that I'm like, oh, this is obviously a synthesizer, but it is kind of evoking water. So I just sort of like just started going through the library and trying to find something that was similar to, to what I remembered from from those things that I'd heard. And I didn't find exactly what I wanted, but I found something close enough that, that kind of did evoke that uh, synth-like texture that I was after. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, I'm, I haven't seen all of the season yet because when we're doing this interview, but by the time this comes out, the season will all have aired and uh, I'm looking forward to catching the end of it. And uh, I'm very jealous that you two both got to uh, play a part in the uh, sound design of a brand new character. That's pretty cool. It's fun. It's fun. And, and I also have to say that the, the clients uh, that we work with on, on What If from Marvel Animation are, are some of the nicest clients we've, we've ever worked with. They're, they're lovely. They push us very hard, though, with, with all the sound effects, the demands, and the, and the bar is high, as you know, with, with all the, the MCU has sounded over the years. So no pressure, but they're, they couldn't be nicer. <laughs> right on. Thank you very much, guys. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 
Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.